This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. at the audience. Wow, they are so beautiful. <laughs> You're all over the place. <laughs> well, um, we are really excited about this conversation tonight, and welcome to CIIS. And, um, oh my goodness, how do we begin? You have to begin. Okay. <laughs> Damaris, when Damaris walked in the door, I walked over to her, and she looked at me like, okay. Then she looked at me, and she was like, Denise, we haven't seen each other in about 20 years. She didn't know I was here, but I knew I was interviewing her, um, and I was so excited to see you. Ditto. Ditto. It was a very round moment. We knew each other a long time ago in a land far, far away called Baltimore. Yeah. And you were a student or teaching? Yeah, teaching, but student age, definitely student age. Student age. <laughs> teaching. Yeah, my first teaching job, and then I was lucky enough to serve as a writing tutor under uh, Denise's supervision. And so this is a very round moment for me, and I've just been moving around so quickly that I didn't pick up that it was Denise. And Denise's last name has shifted slightly. And so I was like, wait. And so I'm still processing that this is the same Dr. Denise that um, tolerated me dragging, you know, I was an untraditional professional and student. So I had a very small child then. So I was like, you know, trying to run around and work these two or three jobs and manage daycare and, you know, shuffling my son back and forth. Denise was very understanding about all of those things. And so, very And I'm so proud of you. Thank you. You are a rock star now. Yeah, you're all over the place talking about this amazing book. And so, um, and we started working with women. So Sojourner Douglas College was the college where we worked in Baltimore. Um, and it was 90% women attending the college, mm-hmm. non-traditional women, who had backgrounds of, oh my goodness, GEDs, mm-hmm. women formerly incarcerated. Absolutely. Uh, women who were uh, looking to advance their education so that they can take care of their children yes. more effectively. And uh, the, that's, that was the constituents that we worked with. Absolutely. And so when I looked at your book t- and in honor of black women, I was like, it's not surprising. We created the sister circle in order for women to have a group of women that could support them. I mean, things were happening on that campus. Right. I remember a story 
uh, <laughs> a student said that her boyfriend stole her books so she couldn't study. Mm. Yeah. It was, yeah, yeah. Those like, were the stories. There, there were extreme situations of negotiating power. So when race, gender, class, responsibility come together, then there are all types of negotiations of power. And so there were extreme circumstances um, where in, at that college where these women were like superheroes and negotiating power from people who did not want them to have any. Um, many who were in um, nearly impoverished situations but still thought that education was important. Got their um, bachelor degrees and their master's mm-hmm. from there. And there was no other college in the area that would ever take them. No. And we took them. Mm-hmm. And they flourished. And they flourished, and many of them became social workers and went right back into the community. Nurses, that's right. And helped other women. Um, there were multi-generational women there, so it might be the grandmother and the mother. That's right. And the kids are in the free daycare program that we had. Yeah, we had there. a daycare program for women there. Yes. We really took care of the women. Mm-hmm. I've never seen any other college that really said, yeah. we, we got this. Right. You know. I totally agree. But you're at our institution. I am at your lovely institution. Here in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And I want you to give them a little flavor of how you write. Okay, so this is, um, it looks like a history book, but these are poems. And so um, I'm going to open up by reading one poem. Now, I usually read either a poem to my grandmother or I read um, a poem to my literary ancestor, um, Lucille Clifton. But today I want to start with uh, reading a poem about Ruby McCullum. So, uh, and this is on page 113. So I want to tell you a little bit about Ruby McCullum first. Ruby McCullum was a woman who was considered to almost be a mathematical genius. She was very bright. She got married to a man named Sam. They uh, moved from south to north in the Great Migration. Once they moved up north, they learned something else or some other things about business, decided to move back to Florida where they were from and start their businesses. And they did those things. In addition to legitimate businesses, they also had an illegal numbers (coughs) business, you know, kind of like illegal lottery, right? Um, which uh, Ruby McCollum managed all the finances and numbers for this business. Um, So a uh, pretty prominent doctor comes along, and he wants to be bribed along with the police officers. And the McCollums agree. They agree. Um, And then Dr. Adams decides that he wants paramour rights. Now, this is something we don't really talk about now, but it was very prevalent then, 1930s. Paramour rights are when you have the intersections of race, gender, and class that favor wealthy white males in a Jane Crow South, and they decide that they want to pick uh, usually a black woman to have a second family with. So he decides that he wants a family with Ruby. 
Now, it doesn't matter that Ruby's already married. doesn't matter that Ruby has three children with her husband. doesn't matter that they have all of these businesses. He's decided that he wants Ruby. So then Ruby has to negotiate power in a Jane Crow South, right? Ruby has a fourth child that is visibly and community accepted to be this doctor's child. Um, she gets pregnant again, and then Dr. Adams is dead on his floor one, one Sunday morning, right? When the court, when it goes to trial, the judge in charge of the court case is Dr. Adams' first cousin. His name is like John Adams. But this is, this is the good part of the story. Good part of the story is that there was always a sister to be, you know, in her corner. And that sister was Zora Neale Hurston. So Zora Neale Hurston, we know that she was an anthropologist, was already documenting this phenomenon, how it was specific to Southern America, these paramour rights. And so she was quick to come and document the story. And then the Pittsburgh Courier decided not to pay Zora. So then Zora left, because if you know Zora, you know she's about her money. Um, But as soon as the court case ended, Zora Neale Hurston wrote a fictional story based on Ruby McCollum and and published it with The Atlantic. So these are the things that you need to know about Ruby McCollum. But now we would call these types of uh, crimes battered woman syndrome, right? Um, Ruby McCollum wasn't allowed to talk in the case at all. The only thing that she was allowed to admit is that her fourth child belonged to Dr. Adams. Everything else, they, they refused to admit into testimony. So this is my, my poem for Ruby McCollum. All right. Um, they lie. Some say that Ruby and her husband Sam are live oaks, black, Bonnie, and Clyde, but they make no mention of the fine house with a pool and the ring of policemen swimming in her and Sam's pockets. I swear, between Alabama and the Gulf, it's hard to keep anything out of a gator's mouth, out of a raccoon's grip. Some bandits are dirty as the devil crawling into your yard, reaching. Greedy bandits treat an open window like an, as an invitation. You find them fat and splayed, sultan kings, crisscrossed in your satins. They reach, clawing you close, whispering, paramour, threatening to tear any black man to pieces. They are, these are the ways he is going to disrobe you, fit you to bear his rascals. A raccoon never retreats, not for threat or bait or broom. They will run you ragged, race, ever wake to find yourself prostrate, Dr. Adam's floor, dressed for church, praying for some prescription or some poison. Ruby needed a bit of something to rid her of the little rascal scratching inside. No, who else would she call? when a critter insists on living in her walls. So, yeah, this, this book tries to, to create praise songs for women that were negotiating power when people presumed that they had none. When they were absolutely, their backs were against the wall 
and they were, they were left to be victims. They made other choices. And so tell me a little bit about how you kind of formulated this idea of integrating research and poetry, and you even have visuals in here. You have pictures that go along with this so that we can see the, the faces of these women. Um, what do you, you, did you have a term for what you call this? Yes. This is, this is remix culture. So I'm in a place that I know will applaud this. So I don't work in a place that necessarily applauds this. But because you go to school here, you know that the experiences that you bring into this place, your life experiences, are just as much a part of the academic discourse as the theories that they teach you here. My black girlhood experience was about hip-hop. I moved outside of New York City when I was in the sixth grade. That's when Special Ed came out with I Got It Made. And so the soundtrack of my, of my life is hip-hop. Hip-hop and um, what we call house music on the East Coast, you guys probably call dub. Um, that, that was the soundtrack of my, of my life. And that's my black girlhood experience. <laughs> And so in addition to um, my father being a pretty prominent pastor in town, and there are a lot of references to spirituality, but the texture of the book, the craft, is that of remix and what I call literary DJing. So DJing is all about the sample. It's all about the sample and when you bring it in. And so the archive is the sample that we all recognize. It's the picture of these famous women. And then the history is kind of um, also a part of the groove, but it's kind of like the, the get down. You know, it's the rhythm and the pace that we're all abiding by. But the poems become the lyrics that I lay on top. And so this is, this is remix in print form. And so you identify a particular women in your remixing. Yes. You bring in Eartha Kitt. Absolutely. 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 You talk about a fierce woman. Right. So not everybody may know because we show in our age maybe a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. But Eartha Kitt, can yeah. you t talk about Eartha? I can. They cover, well, they, you know, Eartha Kitt is praised now, but. I know. Um, but, you know, Eartha Kitt was done so dirty. She was done so we dirty. We got the amen corner in here. Right. I hear the amen corner, and I appreciate you <laughs> and all of your amens. Um, but Eartha Kitt's situation was, and I think it's important to think about this, she was, she was the black woman that, that white America loved, right? She was like the sweetheart, right? Um, actor. Actor. Um, you know, triple threat, dance, singing, um, also uh, acting. Around you know, the, what, 1940s, Late 50s? 40s and 50s. Yes. Um, she had a very unique sound that purr, which she needed to have, um, that added to what they called the torch music. So she was the sensual, sexual woman. You know, maybe, 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 maybe like a little bit of a Rihanna. <laughs> and nowadays, you know, nobody, you know, and I mean that, I mean this in the most respectful way. People enjoyed her voice, but people loved her music, loved her image, 
and were um, entranced by her sexuality and her, her ability to be desirable. Um, so Johnson Bird's wife invites her to the White House, and they say that they're coming to the White House and they're going to discuss some issues as women. And then Eartha Kitt gets there, and they're, um, they're talking about what flowers they want to decorate the highway with. And Eartha Kitt, like, loses it. She's like, it's, it's boys dying in Vietnam. You know, it's boys dying. Why are we talking about flowers here? You know, and so uh, before she even left the White House, they already had printed in the paper that she had bullied the First Lady and made her cry. And then the next 10 years of her life, she had to spend overseas and she couldn't make any money. She was blacklisted. She was blacklisted. So she went from being one of the highest paid entertainers. to being. Can you imagine Rihanna just being swept off the, the artistic landscape, you know? And Eartha Kid didn't have a Fenty in her pocket. You know, I'm so proud of, so proud of Rihanna and Fenty. I'm so proud. I'm so proud. So proud. Because um, I was wondering what she was going to do. But, and like, you know, now she has this lingerie. So I'm, I'm happy about her business acumen. But, um, yeah, Eartha Kid was, was blackballed. Spent 10 years overseas, not really getting any work. You know, you, we know that when your finances are cut off, there are many things that are disrupted in your life. And so that's what happened with Eartha Kitt. Yeah. I'm glad you um, paid homage to her. Absolutely. Because uh, I know some people may know her from Catwoman. Cat, Catwoman. Mm-hmm. And what did Eddie Murphy do with her? Boomerang. 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 But, yeah. But, but. People don't know the the deep story mm-hmm. that um, she was traumatized by that, and she was just telling the truth. She was just telling the truth, and so yeah, she went from being America's sweetheart to to damnation. But I also think it's so funny that that um, that nobody talks about that as a part of her history except for her. So people want to forget that about her. They only want to remember her as the sweetheart of Hollywood or the sweetheart of Broadway. You know, the person that made the that made Catherine Dunham's dance troupe at 15. They want to remember her as this great talent um, and also as this tragic mulatto, right? Like as being like so sad because she couldn't find her space in the world. But Eartha Kitt knew she was black. Mm-hmm. She did. And she she also knew where her politics were. Um, even if everybody wasn't open to hearing them. Yeah. And so for for you to weave her in here, um, what made you think of Eartha? Because um, I'm still artistically learning from Eartha. Mm-hmm. Eartha Kitt. So as, as, as a writer, my aesthetics come out of counterculture. So first I studied jazz before I studied its electronic descendant of hip-hop. But a part of that is I have to be new every day. And so if I want to learn something more about writers, like I've, I've studied with the Urban Bush women, the dance troupe, because I want to figure out how they tell stories with their body, because that's going to make me a better writer. And the way that Eartha Kitt sings her songs, she changes 
the pitch, the tonality, the timbre is a specific performance for every song. And she knows how to capture a song and not, you know, not taking away from other people. Um, but like, let's say not necessarily like Whitney Houston and make it a Whitney song. But each one of those songs becomes a unique artistic development. Um, and even if you don't like Eartha Kitt's voice that much, mm-hmm. you have to respect that technique. Mm-hmm. And so I learned a lot from Eartha Kitt about reinterpreting voice. Mm-hmm. I was studying her very, very closely when I was writing this. Another person that you bring in is one of my favorite women who's a diva out there in the world just because she's just so fierce. And that's Fannie Lou Hamer. Yes. Yes. Fannie was fierce. Fannie was fierce and, 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 and brutally assaulted in prison. And still kept fighting and negotiating power for others. Um, absolutely. And I want to say right now, anybody that's not in the book, that should be in the book, like Ella Baker and Angela Davis, it's just because my poem wasn't good enough. That's the only reason that they're not in the book. Because what I was writing wasn't praiseworthy enough for the person that they are. So if I couldn't get the poem right, I just didn't include it. So I want to say that, too. So you want, um, Can you read Fanny? Yeah, I think I should read Fanny. I should have read Eartha Kid, but I'm going to read Fanny. So you guys should know that I, I am old, number one. Um, but it is so hard to see under these kind of lights. You know, people think that I have um, good eyes. That's what, the, that's what the doctor keeps telling me. And I'm like, listen, lady. I'm getting older. She's like, well, I can't give you glasses until you get to 2020. I'll pick that up later. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm getting there. Okay, so Magnolia State. And another thing that I tried to do in, in, in the um, book is I tried to incorporate some unique aspect of their persona. So in this poem, it's all of the songs or the album that Fannie Lou Hamer created. Uh, and they were the songs that she was singing in, in these um, protest spaces. Mm-hmm. So you'll hear the titles of the songs in this poem. So Magnolia State. Okay, let me look, okay. All the pretty little horses pluck the kernels from the puffs like fine plumes. Patch the children's pockets with collards. Pick a bale of cotton. Tell the story of Emmett Till. Keep your lamp trimmed and burning. Name every chicken that flew the coop for a woman you love. Prove you are literate. Volunteer to vote. Certainly, Lord, your worthless crop-keeping cousin parades in white. He will fire at you. When he takes your job, he will want your life. You will sing, I'm going down to the River Jordan. 
I'm going to hand, I'm going to land on that shore. Woke up this morning knowing the only thing left to be is free. Amazing Grace is a Mississippi melody, a ballad like Bessie, Bessie Smith's marching down Jericho. Your song bellowing in the blood. So with Fannie Lou Hamer, there are a couple of things I'm playing with here. One is um, I believe in close relations of, of Southern living. So I believe if she was in that space for generations and so was the plant, the person that owned the land in that space for generations, likelihood that they were family, whether they claimed each other or not. And this is also playing in on another historical fact. J. Edgar, Edgar Hoover, right? There's a theory out there that he was a passing black man. So this is like a black man who might have been an octoroon who just represented white. But he's also from around that same area as Fannie Lou Hamer. So that's what else I'm playing with. So can you imagine her torturer? Of course you can, right? Because it's America. Her torturer, right? The person who's, who's researching her democracy as criminality being kin to her. But that's the story of America. So I'm also trying to play with that there. Mm-hmm. What, what made you start writing this book about the re- huh. women in resistance, black women in resistance? Well, let me go back. So I started writing about black women in prison first um, because I came across a statistic that over a decade of time um, that the incarceration rate for women had risen over 700%. And for black women, it was like around 814%, right? And so uh, that that impacted me. Um, And I started writing about prisons and obsessively thinking about prisons because they remind me so much of an earlier colonial business model of plantations, Mm -hmm. right? And so I get very uh, traumatized and anxious about um, black women being confined, um, particularly because I have a long memory of America. And so this type of body, a body like mine, is the only body in America that was expected to produce with my hands and with my womb. You know? Always working double duty in every aspect of American history until chattel slavery was outlawed. So not only did someone benefit from a body like mine and whatever it produced with its hands, whether it picked or made or cared for a house, but the children that were birthed were counted as net worth for other people. So there's no way of thinking about America without thinking about the confinement of black women in the ways that black women splinted and secured what we call democracy here. And so um, when I start to think about prisons, I, you know, get a lot of trauma. 
with that particularly these high increases. And I was further annoyed by the fact that whenever we are talking about prisons as a larger community, we focus on men. When the largest increase of the pr- increase in the prison population is women. Well, that's the first thing I asked because I know on the East Coast there's prison there's prisons for women. Mm-hmm. And when I came I said, "Where's the women's prison out here?" Mm-hmm. And they're like, "Then it's not one that's close." There's one in California because they do all kinds of things. Oh, I know. But not in this area here. Jail, but not mm-hmm. prison. And so, yeah, prisons are mm-hmm. all over the country of where women are in. I don't know if this is true for Northern California, but I know in my research in the 30s um, and in the 20s and the 40s with women's prisons. So um, there were pr- women's prisons in Kansas, but women that were incarcerated in Colorado and in Nebraska, the states would pay for them to come to Kansas to be housed. And then they were they were also uh, economic centers. So there was like an orchard, a beauty parlor, a dairy farm, a band that they would farm out to perform at different events. Um, and so even in a juvenile woman's facility, um, there was plenty work to be done. And then you took it on to think about the metaphor of women being bounded and yeah. uh, confined. Mm-hmm. Talk about how you saw that playing out mm-hmm. in institutions. Uh, yeah, um, so bound became a multiple entendre for me. Um, and so I looked first, of course, the literal negative connotations of being bound, meaning like fettered and incarcerated, and then maybe bound by like social institution and oppressed. But then also I wanted to think about um, the positive connotations of bound. So like the first chapter here opens with my ancestors, so how I'm connected to my past. And then the final chapter in the book is about my son into the futures. So it's how I'm connected to my futures. But I also wanted it to be a very important thread throughout the book to show not only how these women were oppressed, but how they sprang forward and sprang out of these situations and how they, they, they um, moved beyond the space. And so that was equally important to envision the women not only as being victimized and oppressed, but somehow engaging in a power negotiation where they were able to free themselves and resist. Um, And a part of that, too, came into play as I was writing the book because um, we know that the women that I'm writing about, some of them are notorious in terms of being criminalized. So I, I spent... Uh, $1,500 purchasing pictures of these women that that are not reinscribing criminality on them. So I wouldn't take any pictures of a woman that was being um, somehow bound. I refused. So whether it was handcuffed or bound more in a chattel slavery sense, I, I wasn't going to have any of the women in the book be bound. And so I had to pay for some of those pictures um, up front before the book was published. 
Yeah. In order to ensure that I wasn't further criminalizing mm-hmm. these women that I respect and love. Mm-hmm. And how did you choose the women who are not known to us? You know, you've got mm-hmm. famous people, mm-hmm. but you have women in there that people may not know about. Well, um, so I have a poem about my, my grandmother in here. Um, and I chose to write about my grandmother. And this the, the poem to my grandmother is called Shut Up In My Bones. And it also has a remix because I already told you who I was. So it has a remix that's a digital remix that combines film, uh, public archives, private archives, voice tracks, songs, and text. And um, it's online. You can just put it, my name in the remix and it'll come up. But I chose my grandmother because my grandmother was the oldest of 11, I believe. But my grandmother was the only one of her siblings that didn't go to college because she got married. And so random times in her home when I was younger, she would just walk past me and she'll be like, I'm the only one of my siblings that didn't go to college. I'd be like, what am I supposed to do with this information, Grandma? You know, I'm a kid. What do you mean? (laughs) And then other times she would say, I was supposed to be a librarian, but um, I got married. And that's all she would say. Just (laughs) roll out. Supposed to do with this? Um, and so it's important to say that my grandfather was in the military and he was involved in um, like infrared technology, and so they lived overseas a lot. And so not only was she unable to access an education, but her life because of her commitment to you know my father and my aunts and her family would be some, in some ways restricted by, by our standards, right? If you have somebody who just wants to be with their sisters and they live in Germany, you know, it's a different negotiation of happiness. And so I thought about that, and I thought about the ways that um, she was diagnosed schizophrenic and what, it, what does that mean for everybody to say that you were the smartest of all of them? You know, and that, you know, to have a life where you couldn't really indulge that in ways that you would like to. And so Shut Up In My Bones is about uh, me having, well, it's about her life and the life we share. And um, me being able to have all those opportunities and me kind of like calling back to her saying, listen, Grandma, it ain't always cracked up to be. I'm trying to tell you about these people in these streets. <laughs> you know, and so that's that's what Shut Up In My Bones is about. That's what that's one of the people that are not really known, um, that, that are bound here. Um, I think all of these other women are, are known, but maybe they're not. Um, you know, of course, Joanne Little, uh, Sweet Honey in a Rock, wrote, wrote a song to her um, about her, her battles with incarceration. Lucille Clifton is a poet. Um, her, her poems are almost exclusively spring forth poems, but I wrote about her grandmother, Lucy Sales. And Lucy Sales was a woman... Um, that was in a relationship with a man, but 
um, when she had her baby, her baby was born with a withered arm, and she thought it was a reflection of her child's father's sin. Um, so uh, one day he was shot off his horse. Now, I'm not going to say who shot him, but one day he was shot off his horse. Um, but what happened, what's remarkable about Lucy Sale's story is her mother was the, um, I'm a little bit jet lagged, so please forgive me, um, was the midwife for just about everybody in this Southern Virginia town. And so when the mob came for Lucy, Mama Caroline said, you won't take my daughter. My daughter deserves a trial. And her daughter was subsequently given a trial, right? But I wanted to think about that intergenerational um, support and um, solidarity that's demonstrated between these generations, too. Mm -hmm. That Mama Caroline used her power of saying, I birthed all of you. You coming to take my daughter? You won't do it. And so, yeah. So those are two women that are less known, I would say. So how does the poetry come out of these um, real lived experiences? What do you do when you start looking? Ask permission, number one. That's number one, and that's, that's a spiritual practice. If you're going to write about somebody, ask permission. It will tell you what you can say and what you cannot say. And then it also required poetry because the history is so limited. Um, and history has a way of devaluing the complexity of humanness. So we talk about Benjamin Franklin and his complexities. We talk about Thomas Jefferson and his complexities. Every once in a while, People talk about Zora Neale Hurston being a scientist and a writer and an artist. But I didn't learn until I started doing intensive research that Ida B. Wells in the 1890s was on the forefront of demography. Her real skill was statistics, and they were still figuring out what statistics was about. And so we get this narrative that Ida B. Wells is simply a journalist and an educator, but we don't, we don't get to meet her as, as an emergent scientist, right? Or as somebody who is adding complexity to the sciences that are happening in her day. Uh, and it's very much the same, um, of course, for Zora Neale Hurston. It's, I'm trying to think who else. There are a lot of people in this book where... And historically, we only talk about one aspect of their life's work when, when these women were very, very intelligent, negotiated power in a multiple ways, but also um, stayed at the forefront of, of, the sciences, of the sciences that people thought were exclusively white and male. They were always disrupt. They were occupying that, right? Like, I'm an Occupy sign, right? <laughs> oh, you think you got some new new? Got you. I'm going to occupy this space. And I think we don't, we don't talk about that. And we need to talk about what well, we need to think about as, 
as women, as human beings, as people who love humanity. Like, I'm all down for Peter, but I am people, Peter for people, right? I'm a humanitarian before I advocate for animals. And I'm not devaluing the life of animals. I'm just picking my lane, right? And so we don't talk about these women in their fullness. Mm -hmm. And when we don't talk about these women in in their fullness, we make people believe that they can only be good at one thing. Mm -hmm. When that's not true. All of us as human beings have the potential to be great at multiple things. Now the opportunities may not be presented, the resources may not be presented, but it's important to know that each of us can be complex without being inhumane. Like we don't have to be superheroes, we can just be human. Full human. And that'll be great. So, do you do you share your philosophy with young women, with teenage girls or uh who are you speaking to? I don't, I don't know. My, my graduate students, you know, I think my students might think I'm a little bit crazy. Uh, my graduate students are like, oh, man, like, you know, you just, you just talking in class. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Because um, I believe two things. I believe Tony K. Bambara when she said anything, any words that you hold in your mouth, it's going to swallow It's going to be a lump in your throat. Then it's going to be a tumor in your stomach. So that's one way. I don't let my silences kill me. So I've learned to undo that. Whenever I feel the need to be silent, I try to fight against that anxiety. Because ultimately, it's only going to hurt me. It saves the people who might be oppressing me, but it hurts me, right? And then one of the other things that I love, this is from Zora Neale Hurston. If you are silent while your enemies torture you, they will kill you and say you loved it. So I remember those two things when I speak all of the time. Or I try to remember that. Well, people don't even know Tony Kate, uh, Kate Bambara. Fire. 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 Tony K. Bambara. Mm. She has a bunch of uh, short, consecrated, concentrated stories, and you can find a lot of them online. But just about every protagonist and every story she writes is like a nine-year-old little girl who's scared of nothing. Nine-year-old little black girl who's scared of nothing. Some of them cuss. They're all highly intelligent. Um... And she, she writes about some beautiful worlds. And we lost her many years ago. But, you know, uh, Toni Morrison was in her fan club. Absolutely. And Nikki, Nikki Finney mm-hmm. was one of her mentees. Mm-hmm. Her, her archives are at Spelman, but she's a prolific and beautiful writer. Mm-hmm. Like, her writing is like stained glass. Mm-hmm. So pretty. Mm-hmm. So beautiful. And so are you. Thank you, please. I just want to finish 
by you talking about you 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 bring in Sandra Bland. I'll read Sandra Bland first before I talk about it. Okay. Thank you for paying homage to Sandra. I had to. Sandra was very important to the book. In the beginning, she was she was almost like a, a Virgil, almost like a god, right? But she's so young that um, that I had to turn to Harriet Tubman because I needed I needed somebody else that that knew knew a longer history. And, and she was definitely it. So now I have to find the Sandra Bland poem. And I always seem to lose it. Is it towards the end? I think it's towards the end, but it's never really oh, here it towards is. Um, the end. 97. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, I think I wrote, I think initially it was towards the end, but it's never really towards the end. No. Because the end is about my son, and so... It's not towards the end, but it was one of the last poems that I wrote. So this is uh, Sandy Speaks, and it's a choral refrain. Um, It could have been me. With three degrees creased into the front seats, bits of constitution in my veins, like Braille. The declarations tattooed inside my eyelids, How many times did Sally Hemings have to hear about them and affirm the tiny ego of Tom before he bears himself to his brothers, collecting their boastings, forgiving his debts? It could have been me. Like Sandy, I would have missed them dashes in the road. The ways I skirt around corners under the cover of sun, I fling an interview Happy to have some means, pockets fluffy with promises. It could have been me, listening to the gospel, the lilts in my throat, running, and a marble fog above my lips. My car would be all clouds, a heaven shaved with blue and red lights. It would have been me, my eyebrows high, my voice low, questioning Encenia about his bidding. It could have been me, a black woman, the color of Oklahoma clay, a policeman, pretending to be some cowboy. Sandy had been in Texas but a day. How long had he been hunting for one like her? And Cindy had seen it, this in his mind. It was a means of forgetting the woman that refused to love him and the black man she clinged to in this vision He is a rodeo-style hero, and Sandy is some rogue rascal. He holds out his tongue to the shower of coins and praises. A black woman without a job owns her dignity. Did his fantasies desire that too? He minded out of her back with his knees. History told him that he could squeeze gold from a black woman's wrist with iron cuffs. Is that why he braided the noose to resemble a lasso? So I I wanted, it was important to put Sandy um, or Sandra Bland in this book because when I think about the histories of criminality and resistance, 
It's important to remember that Harriet Tubman was considered a criminal. It's important, right? When we start to talk about democracy, when we start to talk about the history of this country, when we start to talk about what freedom really, really means, the person that freed a thousand people was considered a criminal. The price on her head, dead or alive in the pre-emancipated South, was $40,000, which in 2014 was equivalent to $1,100,000. I think it is not ironic, but um, telling that the price, the initial price on the Sada Shakur's head was a million dollars. Right? A woman that ran the Black Liberation Party. Right? Who doctors, doctors have documented that she could not have killed that police officer. And I don't want anybody to die, but she could not have shot that police officer and murdered him. That's what three different medical examiners say. But her price on her head was still a million dollars. The same worth of Harriet Tubman. I also find it telling, and I I, I don't want to start a conspiracy theory. I'm just talking about the parallels that Sandra Bland had began her own campaign against police brutality. That was the hashtag Sandy Speaks. If you go to that hashtag right now, there are archived video logs of her talking about police brutality, right? And I think it's more telling about how power is negotiated in this country that three women that were committed to liberation at least three women, right? And this is not even talking about Fannie Lou Hamer or Ella Baker or Angela Davis or any of these other women in American history, right? But these women that were committed to liberation were instantly criminalized. What is so dangerous about a black woman being committed to freedom in this country, particularly the freedom of all, right? If it's individualist, it's, 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 I, I, I find less criminalization occurring in individualist acts of liberation and resistance. But when a black woman says we can all get free, then she got problems. She has problems in her life that she has not generated. Right. And so it was important that Sandra be a part of that, considering the parallels um, and her very small but appropriate protest for her generation. And then her becoming a victim of the v- very brutality that she stood against. This is a powerful book with some powerful words for us to take at heart and to remember these women. We can't forget them. Mm-mm. We can't forget them. We cannot forget them. I thank you. Thank you, Denise. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs. 
Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.